0: Well, welcome to all our first movers around the globe it's monday and the end of july is nigh i spy a summer flying by a busy week lies ahead you cannot deny as wall street bids july goodbye july j is for job supply Wall Street gearing up for important employment data that will help plot the Fed's policy course over into the fall. A soft economic landing ahead and more policy from the Fed. Turbulence dread we'll discuss with Christina Hooper of Invesco. In the meantime, you is for Uber Profits. Earnings from the car-hailing app and other tech giants like Apple and Amazon are all on tap this week. Some 80% of companies beating modest, let's be clear, expectations this earnings season and in turn trouncing concerns of a corporate profit recession. L. Is for logo lost. The Twitter bird disappeared from social media giant X's app. X marking the spot too atop its headquarters in San Francisco. So no bird is the word, but is the X really preferred? And why is yuan deterred the Chinese currency under pressure as manufacturing data disappointed once again? That's actually the fourth straight month of manufacturing weakness and will no doubt fuel calls for more stimulus spending from Beijing. All this as severe weather bears down on the Chinese capital, too. A powerful typhoon with another powerful storm on its way. A full report on that just ahead. In the meantime, how are stock markets reacting? Well, Chinese stocks beginning the week with gains. Stimulus hopes abound. But the latest Chinese Beige Book showing consumers cutting back spending on everything but restaurants and travel. In the meantime, Japan, the big gainer, up more than 1%, as you can see, with the more inclusive Topics Index hitting 33-year highs. We'll be discussing that, too. In the meantime, U.S. stocks set for a higher open after three straight weeks of gains. And Europe, too, in the green amid encouraging data there. Eurozone growth data positive once again and inflation easing to 5.3% year over year. For context, prices were up over 9% this time last year. So certainly cooling there too. A lot to get to, as always, this hour. But we do begin with the latest from Ukraine. And uh, let me give you the, uh, the latest from Ukraine. Where President Zelensky's hometown was struck by Russian missiles. At least four people have lost their lives in the attack. And over 40 others were injured. Meanwhile, this...
1: There was a
0: drone attack on Moscow, a business centre in the Russian capital was damaged on Sunday. Nick Payton Walsh joins us now. Nick, let's start in Ukraine and that attack on Kriviri. I believe one of those buildings contained a school.
2: Yeah, I mean, at this point, it's startling, really, to see the number of injured involved. Over 50 and four dead, including a 45-year-old woman and her 10-year-old daughter, and two men as well. Now, one of the witnesses, Natalia Balaba, from an apartment block near where one of these missiles landed, described how her husband was knocked off her feet and how her child was basically safe because they were in the bathroom. And indeed, another missile landing near a polytechnic for economic and technological studies where another witness, described how there was nobody in the building where the missile landed but they simply didn't have time even to respond. This startling frankly because it appears to be an escalation by Russia to hit civilian areas. Krivi Rick as you said Volodymyr Zelensky the president of Ukraine's hometown. A vast sprawling industrial town quite far at this point since the front lines have changed away from the fighting but clearly a place that Russia today wanted to inflict damage upon. Now it's important to point out now when we talk about Uh, Ukrainian, it seems, Ukrainian drone attacks on areas like, you showed the video there, Moscow City in the Russian capital. That pales into insignificance compared to the daily damage being done uh, to Ukraine by often indiscriminate, blatantly uh, vicious Russian missile strikes. But the images that emerged from Moscow City, an upscale, glass-towered financial district, a sign, really, of the opulence uh, that Russia's tried to maintain on the global stage uh, over the past decade, That being hit by Ukrainian drones that, frankly, a year ago you wouldn't even thought could possibly get through Russian air defences. That is indeed a deep psychological blow and one I'm sure uh, that the Kremlin feel they have to respond to in some way, despite the fact, strangely today, their spokesperson Dmitry Peskov calling those drones attacks an act of desperation. But we are here uh, in the south, Zaporizhia, where Ukraine continues to push forward uh, in its counter-offensive. Some slow and at times reversed progress, particularly to the east of these front lines but the tempo of this war certainly rising at this moment as russia feels itself potentially in its motherland more under attack vladimir zelensky said yesterday that the war is gradually returning to russia but it is quite clear that we will continue to see this blatant bid by russia to impact a civilian toll on ukraine regardless uh, of how they're faring on the battlefield here julia
0: nick good to have you thank you nick Peyton walsh there Now a powerful explosion in Pakistan, a suspected suicide bomber taking dozens of lives at a political rally and wounding more than 100 others. No one has claimed responsibility for the attack. Ivan Watson has more.
3: There was an evening of death and carnage in a small Pakistani town not far from the border with Afghanistan on Sunday. Pakistani police say a suicide bomber detonated 8 to 10 kilograms of explosives near the stage of a political party gathering. At least 54 people were killed. 12 of those victims under the age of 12 and many more wounded. Uh, The gathering uh, involved a right-wing Islamist political party that goes under the acronym JUIF. Uh, It is part of the governing coalition in the national government. Up until now, there has not been a formal claim of responsibility. Here's what one man had to say who arrived on the scene of this deadly blast uh, shortly after it it took place. I was in close proximity when the blast occurred. Upon arriving at the scene, I was confronted with a devastating sight. Lifeless bodies scattered on the ground while people cried out for assistance amidst the bloodstained surrounding. People were picking up bodies on their own. Around 400 to 500 individuals had gathered here to attend the convention organized by the JUIF party. Now, deadly acts of political violence, uh, tragically, they do take place in Pakistan, and there's a whole range of different organizations and and ideologies that have been affiliated with this kind of violence in the past. For example, uh, in January of this year, there was a suicide blast that targeted a mosque in a police compound in the western city of Peshawar, Uh, scores of people killed. uh, And that was claimed initially by the Pakistani Taliban, which then denied responsibility for the attack. One of the deadliest suicide bombs in modern Pakistani history was back in 2018. It targeted another political party in Balochistan province and the Pakistani branch of ISIS claimed responsibility for that terrible attack. The Pakistani prime minister has denounced this act of violence and expressed uh, his regrets. And there are concerns that there could be more violence on the horizon uh, as Pakistan is expected to hold national elections uh, this autumn. Ivan Watson, CNN, Hong Kong.
0: Now the president of Chad is in Niger meeting with both coup leaders and the elected president Mohamed Bazoum, in an effort to facilitate a policeful solution to the crisis there. It comes after thousands of protesters took to the streets on Sunday in support of the coup. Tense and sometimes violent scenes played out in front of the French embassy as protesters shouted their support for Russian president Vladimir Putin. Others condemned France's influence in the country and burnt French flags. Larry Madao joins us now. This meeting with the president of Chad and coup leaders particularly comes after a warning from leaders of Western African nations saying, look, give up or face potential military action. The question is, what can he achieve?
4: He can try and talk to these coup leaders to, you know, go back to the barracks. It's unlikely they will heed because France is now responding to claims from the coup leaders that, France is planning military strikes in Niger to free the ousted President Mohamed Bazoum. The military junta claimed that on stage television that France has been holding meetings with the former, the the director of, uh, the head of the presidential guard as well as, actually that's not correct. The claim for the military junta here is that the foreign minister acting as the head of government as well as the head of the national guard have held meetings with Paris and that they have authorized France to carry out military strikes in Niger to free the outside President Bazoum. We've heard now this response from a spokesperson from the French, now telling CNN that France recalls that it recognizes President Mohamed Bazoum and the democratically elected institutions as the only legitimate authorities in Niger. Our priority is the safety of our nationals and our holdings, which must not be the object of violence in accordance with international law. So it's a denial. They're not explicitly saying they're not planning these strikes, but they're not saying they're not planning them either. But that's not likely to go down well with the thousands of people that marched on the streets of Niamey on Sunday against French influence, against France-Afrique, against ECOWAS, the regional body, and against any international meddling. Angry Nigerians smashing windows of the French embassy in the capital, Niamey. Thousands of people outraged at the country's former colonial power, a day after it suspended aid and financial support for Niger with immediate effect. Down with France, some said, condemning French support for ousted President Mohamed Bazoum. Unable to get into the heavily protected compound, a window is set on fire and a French flag trashed, a common sight since Wednesday's military coup. Security forces eventually deployed tear gas to disperse the protesters. France warned it would retaliate immediately and in a strict manner in case of any attacks against its embassy, nationals, army or diplomats. The Elysee Palace saying on Sunday, adding that President Emmanuel Macron will not tolerate any attack against France and its interests. The military junta that ousted the West African country's democratically elected president, keen to show France and the world that it has the backing of the public.
2: We also came out to tell this little Macron
4: from France that Niger belongs to us. It's up to us to do what we want with Niger, what we want. We deal with who we want and how we want. We are forming support for the army. A sea of people outside Niger's parliament denouncing France and some raising Russian flags. Long live Putin, And long live Russia, the protesters say, demanding that foreign armies leave the country. France has about 1,500 troops in Niger, a key ally in the fight against terrorism in the Sahel. The U.S. has about 1,000 troops in the country involved in counterterrorism operations.
5: As citizens of Niger, we are against French bases, American bases, Canadian bases, Italian bases. All the bases that are in Niger, we don't need them.
4: The head of the presidential guard, General Abdurrahman Tiani deposed his boss and declared himself Niger's new leader on Friday, saying he would suspend the constitution and rule with the so-called National Council for the Safeguard of the Homeland.
2: They're really brave and I support them 100%. We've really suffered a lot. We've suffered a lot because they are our children. A lot of blood has been shed in Niger. We want peace. We want peace.
4: In neighboring Nigeria, an emergency summit of the Economic Community of West African States, ECOWAS. Regional leaders announcing sanctions including closing borders, a travel ban, a no-fly zone, freezing assets, and a deadline. ECOWAS has given the Niger Junta one week to reinstate President Bazoum or threatened to take all measures to restore his government.
6: Such measures may include
4: the use of force. To this effect, the chiefs, the chiefs of defense staff of ECOWAS Atom meet immediately. But many protesters on the street don't want any ECOWAS military intervention or involvement. And the military junta says, it's ready.
3: We once again remind ECOWAS and those who wish to adventure in this of our firm determination to defend our country.
4: A strong threat from ECOWAS, the regional body, and fighting words from the military. That's where the mediator comes in. That man is Mohamed Idris Debi Itnohi. He is the president, transitional president of neighboring Chad. And he's been in Niamey meeting with President Mohamed Bazoum, the first time we've seen him in public, as well as with General Abdulrahman Tiani, the man who deposed his boss. He was the head of the presidential guard and now claims he's the leader. And uh, President Deby said they had in-depth discussions about how to find a peaceful resolution to this crisis, though he didn't say what progress was made out of that. All he says is that they talked in a fraternal approach, which aims to explore all avenues. So not quite the white smoke that the region is waiting for, especially because these cool leaders are emboldened by the fact that, Julia, they appear to have public support. Despite what the region and the world is telling them, they, they feel that the people of Niger are with them.
0: Yeah, it's such a great point. And you understand the uh, nervousness, and concern about potential spillover effects when you see protests and particularly comments like that. Um, Great report. Larry, thank you for that. Turning now to frightening scenes from Beijing and other parts of northeast China as extreme summertime weather batters the region. At least four people have died. Thousands evacuated as one of the strongest typhoons in some 17 years triggers major flooding in many cities. The storm also caused damage in the Philippines and in Taiwan. Forecasters warning another powerful storm is also on the way. Leila Harak reports on the daring rescue and the devastating damage in China.
1: Rescuers in speedboats zoom across the water in southeastern China. It's the best and at times only way to access cities flooded by recent heavy rains. The boats navigating the tight streets, at times floating up to the front doors of homes to ferry stranded residents to safer ground. Officials say over the weekend, more than 500,000 people have been evacuated from the region, where a powerful storm named Daksuri made landfall as a typhoon Friday after battering the Philippines. It's since been downgraded, but officials are warning of torrential rain and hazardous flooding for any city in its path. And that includes Beijing has been doused with heavy showers that are expected to continue until Tuesday. Authorities have urged residents in the Chinese capital to stay indoors, and thousands of people have already been evacuated from areas with flood risks. Authorities say there could be potentially hazardous conditions, like those seen in other parts of the country. In eastern China, security camera footage captured a man caught in rushing waters on a street. A bus driver stopped to help him as debris surrounds them, but the man is eventually dragged out of the water with the help of some people passing by. In the southern part of the country, some residents are taking stock of the damage and trying to salvage what they can from their waterlogged homes. But that break may not last for long, as another powerful storm could possibly make landfall in China later this week. Leila Harak, CNN.
0: To Miami now, and the property manager, who allegedly said the boss wanted surveillance video deleted at Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort, will appear in court later today to face four criminal charges. It comes as the frontrunner for the Republican presidential nomination continues to protest his innocence. Randy Kay has the story. Donald Trump slamming the special prosecutor's team. These are
5: crooked people as he learns of new legal threats he and his employees may face. Newly named co-defendant Mar-a-Lago property manager Carlos de Oliveira is set to be arraigned today in Miami. A superseding indictment alleges he, along with Trump aide Walt Nada, attempted to delete security camera footage at the club after the Justice Department issued a subpoena for it. According to the indictment, de Oliveira told one of the resort's IT workers the boss wanted the server deleted. CNN has now learned that IT worker UCL Tavares has received a target letter from federal prosecutors. Tavares reportedly met with investigators after Trump's first indictment in June. It's unclear if he's cooperating with the investigation, but sources say some of the new allegations against Trump were based, at least in part, on information Tavares provided. Trump, facing additional charges for mishandling classified documents, maintained his innocence on social media claiming his legal team voluntarily handed over the tapes to the special counsel and that he never told anybody to delete them. De Oliveira is separately charged with lying to the FBI about moving boxes of classified documents from Trump's residence
7: to a storage room. This is bad stuff. And, you know, you can't say there was no underlying uh, potential crime here. The superseding
5: indictment giving Trump's opponents an opportunity to go after the frontrunner.
7: It's pretty brazen. These guys were were acting like the the Corleones with no experience.
5: Other candidates treading more cautiously over the indictment as Trump remains popular with the GOP base.
0: None of us want to be talking about indictments. I don't even know if it's the third, fourth or fifth indictment right now, but what I can tell you is it's a distraction.
5: Most use the issue to steer the conversation to the future.
7: One of the right ways to do that is to pardon the former president of the United States from what is clearly a politicized prosecution.
5: Even Trump's top rival, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, wary of engaging.
8: I want to spend less time litigating that because that's really looking in the past and more time focusing on the future in terms of what we need to
4: accomplish as a country.
5: At a GOP party dinner in Iowa, direct criticism of Trump drew a rebuke from the audience.
4: Donald Trump is running to stay out of prison. And if we elect... I know, listen, I know the truth. The truth
3: is hard.
5: Closing out the dinner, Trump steered clear of the new charges against him.
3: If I weren't running, I would have nobody coming after me.
0: Okay, coming up on First Move, migrant monitoring. We explore new AI surveillance tech being used in the English Channel. Stay with us. More coming
7: up. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or SleepNumber.com.
0: Welcome back to First Move. In the United Kingdom, the government is ramping up measures to deter migrants crossing the channel from France. And a controversial new law has been passed that will include criminalizing anyone who seeks asylum in this manner. To facilitate this, the country has invested millions of dollars equivalent in high-tech surveillance to spot small boats. But despite this, a CNN investigation found no evidence it was used during the deadliest incident in the channel last year. CNN's Katie Paul reports.
9: It's 3 in the morning on the 14th of December 2022, in the middle of the English Channel. A fisherman has spotted multiple people in the water and is trying to haul them out. It was pitch dark. It was, it was a very cold night, minus 1, minus 2, and there was a lot of screaming. In total, they rescue 31 people from the sinking vessel, including two Afghan boys just 12 and 13 years old. There's a an area we're we fishing a lot. And if we were not there, uh, every one of them would have probably browser. UK authorities arrive later and rescue eight more. Four die in what becomes the worst migrant tragedy in the Channel that year. But officials had been informed of the incident nearly an hour earlier.
3: Please help. our We have a children and family in a boat. Please, we are on the water.
9: At just before 2 a.m., the boat had made a distress call here to Utopia 56, a French migrant charity that passed it on to the French and UK authorities. The French Coast Guard say the boat is undetectable on shipping radar, but estimate it will shortly cross into British waters. Now CNN has found that at the time of the incident, the UK government had expensive AI technology designed to spot these boats, and knowing that the vessel was soon entering their territory and that there were people freezing in the water, including children, they could have sent this. A Takeva AR-5 drone designed to detect small boats and capable of deploying a life raft. It's licensed by the UK government, even the British prime minister proud to show it off. CNN has established it flew over the same area where the distress call was made on multiple previous journeys. It even flew the day before and after the incident, but not in the hours the vessel was sinking. Instead, it took more than an hour for the first UK lifeboat to arrive, in which time a fishing crew rescued the majority on board.
3: We must
4: stop the boats.
9: This tech forms part of a campaign of deterrence and hostility by the government towards those attempting to reach British shores. Millions of pounds have been spent on AI cameras trained to find rubber dinghies, some able to see beyond UK waters, drones with automatic identification abilities. And while the companies tout their life-saving capabilities, footage from these drones is also being used to identify those driving the boats and prosecute them for human trafficking. A new bill will take it even further, criminalising anyone who seeks asylum in the UK this way.
6: Yes, technology could very easily be used for search and rescue, for finding boats faster, for preventing these horrific disasters. But unfortunately, the reality on the ground is the opposite. It's assisting powerful actors to be able to sharpen their borders, make it more difficult for people to come, and again, using, using
9: surveillance for these kind of ends. And it follows a global trend in digitising border
3: security. These towers operate 24-7, 365.
9: The same sentry towers made by the American tech startup Anduril that line the US-Mexico border have recently been installed along the British coastline to identify and track boats. Another company, Sirius Insight AI, whose technology is also available to the UK authorities, insisted their tech is used for saving lives, but stopped short of talking about how the government uses it.
4: Our equipment shows any vessel that's in the UK territorial waters where it is and where it's going. Uh, and, and if that vessel is in distress, it allows the lifeboat to get to that precise location because we're tracking it.
9: And so we've been following some of the incidents that have unfortunately led to fatalities in the channel. If we have this technology, why are people dying?
8: I don't think I can
4: comment on those instances um, because of the commercial nature of our relationship
8: with, with the Home Office. I'm
9: the Home Office declined to comment on the incident on the 14th of December. In response to a freedom of information request submitted by CNN, UK Border Force said revealing the tech's capability might aid the criminals facilitating the crossings and increase risk to life at sea. The Coast Guard declined to comment, citing an ongoing investigation into the incident and a court case underway to prosecute the alleged driver of the boat. A new record was set for June, with nearly 4,000 people detected arriving to the UK. But for those that do make it, they face an increasingly hostile welcome. Katie Poglais, CNN, London. More First Move after this.
0: Welcome back to First Move, the first day of trade on Wall Street for the week. And the Bulls are hoping to break some all-time records. It is actually a mixed picture, though, in early trade. But the Dow beginning the last trading say of July, only about what three percent away from its first record highs in around 18 months. All the major averages also set for solid monthly gains. The fifth straight monthly advance, in fact, for the Nasdaq and for the SP 500. And investors, I think, thinking this rally could have legs, more stock sectors and not just tech, beginning to see investor interest. Market breadth is always a good thing. The rally. Is a global one too let's be clear the german dax hitting record highs today as we mentioned earlier the japanese topics is at 33 year highs stock gains reflecting hopes for firmer global growth which will only fuel energy demand both brent and u.s crew trading over 80 dollars a barrel on on track for their best month in fact since january christina Hooper is chief global market strategist at Invesco and joins us now christina happy summer great to have you on the show can we talk about the message from stock market investors broadly at this moment, there does seem to be a sense that the worst has passed as far as the inflation threat is concerned and that central bankers have managed this relatively well. Confidence is good. Are some of them too confident?
10: I think there might be too much confidence, particularly around when the Fed is expected to start cutting rates. I think there could be some disappointment for stock market investors in the near term as they come to reprice expectations around when rate cuts are likely to start. Now, it shouldn't be a surprise because we've heard the Fed repeat over and over again. They don't plan to cut anytime soon. However, I do think that the prevailing wisdom among stock market investors is that they will see cuts fairly soon, and that could lead certainly uh, to some disappointment. I also think in general, after a pretty significant rally like the one we've seen this year, this is time for a period of digestion as we wait for the next Fed meeting. And quite frankly, we wait for what other central bankers are going to do as well.
0: You're skipping past the prospect of them hiking again if there is some kind of growth, real acceleration. And I, I know you're not expecting that. In fact, in your your note this week, you um, you said if you were a country singer, the song would be "How Can I Miss You If You Won't Go Away." In terms of their um, ability to keep coming back to this and, and hiking more, which amused me. Um, Can we completely rule that out? The disappointment then is the the timing of the cuts versus anything else. And does that mean we see some kind of um, consolidationary period then in the, the rally that we've seen for U.S. markets?
10: Well we can't completely rule it out I'm um, certainly the Fed feels confident that the economy is on solid footing um, and that has appeared uh, very clear in recent communications from the Fed especially Jay Powell's press conference last week so certainly they feel emboldened to hike again if they need to I'm just not sure they're going to need to because the inflation data is moving in the right direction. Now of course we have a long period of time eight weeks um, for the Fed to really assess the inflation picture. But um, I do think there certainly is the potential for the Fed uh, to hike rates. Uh, It could do that. It's not afraid to do that. And certainly that could be something uh, of a slight setback for the stock market, um, but again, in general, this should be a period of digestion. Given the significant gains we've seen thus far this year, we do know that historically, once the Fed does stop hiking rates, that tends to begin a period uh, of of. Positive stock market performance in the following year. Um, So it it could be a scenario where we see some short term digestion. And then by the end of the year, the stock market is actually modestly higher than where we are today.
0: Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because I look at the performance that we've seen sort of year to date now for stocks, particularly if you look in the tech sector in particular and wonder sort of how much of that. Sort of good news on the end of rate cycle is already in the price for some of these. What provides the leadership, and can you sort of in some way tie that to what we've seen so far for for earnings season? What what your uh, what your views are on the outlook of that?
10: Well, certainly, earnings season has been fairly good, just because expectations have been diminished, right? Companies have been fairly good at managing expectations. So I actually think that the leadership is certainly going to be helped um, by earnings season. And we've seen a broadening really since June 1st um, for the stock market. It had been really a a story about tech driving returns. And and now it's certainly been a broadening. Uh, But I think ultimately what we're going to see and where we're going to see the rotation coming from is an expectation on the part of markets that the economy will be recovering. Uh, I think we'll see a discounting of an economic recovery, which means smaller caps will perform better, cyclicals will perform better. But that should take some time. I, I think that that um, next up on deck for the stock market
0: is probably a period of consolidation. And very quickly, Christina, can I get your take globally? What do you like um, as you look around the world? I've mentioned the Japanese stock market a couple of times. I know they shifted some of their monetary policy in the past week too. Um, what do you What do you like when you look internationally?
10: Well, I'm, I'm getting more excited about China, just given that we're getting closer to more tangible plans for stimulus uh, directed at driving consumption. Uh, so that could certainly provide a nice boost to Chinese equities. Uh, certainly in the shorter term, we have seen a mini rally there. Uh, also, in general, I think that a weaker dollar is likely to make um, stocks look more attractive in a variety of areas uh, outside the United United States, I would focus in on, though, uh, Asia emerging markets, not just China, um, but uh, but other uh, emerging markets countries in Asia that are benefiting from not just the China reopening, um, but their own stories. Um, there's a, a lot of growth there um, and demographics are certainly in their favor.
0: Yeah, we need to hold in on that. Um, we will reconvene. Christina, great to have you with us. Christina Hooper, Chief Global Market Strategist at Invesco. Thank you. Okay, coming up after the break, fueling a cleaner aviation sector. How sustainable aviation fuel will help airlines become cleaner and greener. Next. The
10: Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary
7: hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities.
3: Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education.
10: Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite
5: podcast app.
0: Welcome back to First Move. More than 3.8 billion passengers flew around the world last year. And those planes generated 2% of the world's carbon emissions powered by fossil fuels. The industry is clearly looking at ways to address this with things like electric and hydrogen-powered jets. But what if we could simply use cleaner fuel? It's called Sustainable Aviation Fuel, or SAF for short. Lanzajet makes this fuel using low-carbon ethanol in a process called alcohol-to-jet, or ATJ. This reduces the carbon footprint by more than 80% during its life cycle. The fuel can be used by regular aircraft and can use existing refueling systems without modification. But there's clearly a huge tank to fill. IATA estimates suppliers will make at least 79 million gallons of SAF this year, Sounds a lot. Well, it is. But in 2019, global aviation guzzled 95 billion gallons of aviation fuel. Okay, let's discuss. Jimmy Samatsis is the CEO of LanzaJet and he joins us now. Jimmy, you are on a mission. I tell you what I do like about SAF is that it works with the infrastructure that we have today. Talk us through your plans.
8: that's exactly right. Uh, SAF is the solution that the aviation industry sees as being the most probable solution in the near, mid and long term, uh, along with replacing aircraft and flying more efficiently. Uh, but SAF, they see as uh, 60 to 70 percent of the solution to get to net zero emissions, by the way, by 2050, which is what the industry has set as the goal. And here at LanzaJet, Jet, as you pointed out, we use ethanol as the starting point and we're able to convert that ethanol molecule into a drop in jet fuel product that can use existing infrastructure, existing aircraft engines um, and can be used today. We've already flown two commercial flights, uh, one with Virgin Atlantic across the uh, Atlantic Ocean to uh, the UK and one with Al Nippon Airways over to Japan.
0: Okay. And you use SAF with traditional aviation fuel, too, and you can blend it in different concentrations. So you can, in a way, and we'll come back to the price, you can take your pick, at least at this stage, of what concentration of of the SAF you use along with the aviation fuel. So the more, the better, arguably, in terms of green efficiency, if nothing else.
8: And that's absolutely right. So uh, SAF today has to be blended up to a maximum of 50 percent. As you can imagine, flying airplanes, uh, safety is a top priority, Ah, uh, the quality of the fuel that gets produced has to meet very specific uh, qualifications. That is approved by a body called ASTM. Our pathway, alcohol to jet, was approved by ASTM in 2018, uh, which means that the fuel that we produce is viable and meets the quality and safety specifications to be flown on commercially av- um, on commercial airlines. At the okay, end of the day, yeah, yeah, go ahead.
0: No, I was just going to say, so above 50, the performance isn't isn't good enough. So you have to stay below 50 percent, at least for now.
8: Now we can actually use the fuel um, up to 100 percent. One of the benefits that we have in using SAF is we, we pull out aromatics, which exist in crude oil-based jet fuel. The aromatics that we pull out is what gives us some of the positive environmental performance. So there's a lot of work going on within the industry right now to actually approve these drop in fuels up to 100 percent. That is only a matter of time. Uh, But that's also why relationships and partnerships with the likes of Airbus and Boeing and the engine manufacturers um, are important to us so that we can get to the point where we can use our fuel as as 100 percent drop in fuel.
0: Okay, so these are all the positives. Now let's talk about some of the challenges. Cost. How does a gallon of SAF compare to the cost of aviation fuel today? How many times more expensive is it, at least for now?
8: Yeah, we're at the infancy of the industry. So, as you can imagine, new technology being deployed that hasn't yet scaled up fully, the costs are going to be higher. Um, Most folks quote on average two to three times the price of fossil jet fuel. But we, with our technology, fully expect that that cost will come down substantially as we scale up our technology and deploy it on a global basis.
0: Who's going to help subsidize, Jimmy? It's not going to be done by corporations alone, however invested they are in 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 greening up and protecting the planet. Government subsidies are required. Do you agree? And to what extent should they be subsidizing this?
8: I do agree. It's necessary as you're building a new industry. If you think about what we're doing, we're disrupting uh, a fossil fuel industry that has been doing this work with fossil-based jet fuel for 80 plus years. As you get new technologies off the ground, as you get a new industry off the ground, As you build comfort with airlines and with airports around the use of the fuel, uh, there's a lot that needs to happen still. Uh, Policy does make a big difference. Here in the US with the Inflation Reduction Act, um, it is probably one of the most monumental pieces of legislation to help get this industry off the ground. It is performance based, uh, which means that if you do the right things from a sustainability perspective, if you have the right reduction in carbon intensity, you have a higher value in the incentive very different in other parts of the world. Places like the European Union, have they mostly have mandates. Uh, the, Japan, the Japanese government has recently announced that they intend to introduce a 10% mandate by 2030. Uh, so you have a, a wide range of uh, policies that are falling into place, but absolutely critical in these early stages to help us get the industry off the ground.
0: Yeah, I feel like it's okay making a mandate, but you have to work out how um, the financing takes place at um, at the same time. I've added up and I've seen it written a couple of times. You can correct me, though, if it's wrong. Of of all the projects that you're talking about around the world, and I know it includes North America, Europe and Asia, around a billion gallons of SAF um, could potentially be produced. I used the stat in the introduction, 95 billion gallons consumed in, in 2019 scale. Jimmy, how do we scale this up efficiently?
8: Yeah, it's a big challenge, but it's also a huge opportunity for all of us. I'm actually talking today from our first plant here in the state of Georgia. It is actually the world's first alcohol to jet facility. This is a small plant in comparison to what's needed to be done, but it is the requisite first step as we commercialize our technology. There are many pathways. ASTM, uh, the body that I mentioned earlier, has approved seven pathways to date. You have technology that's been deployed globally that uses animal fats, oils and greases. It's a technology that is more uh, accustomed to the traditional refinery environment, if you will. Uh, But that's only a pathway. Ours is another pathway. We need all of these pathways to succeed on a global basis in order for us to truly uh, make the impact that, that, that we need to have. Uh, the United States has a goal of 3 billion gallons by the year 2030. We've committed to the White House and the administration that we can do 1 billion gallons of that. But you're right, 100 billion gallon target on a global basis with, with 2019 gallons is a pretty substantial gap. Uh, so we, it does require all solutions on the table.
0: It's enormous. Very quickly, you mentioned that this is a long term solution and not just a bridge. So a bridge to new technologies like electric or our hydrogen powered aircraft, for example. How much of the gap that we have to get in terms of reducing carbon emissions do you think longer term is filled by cleaner fuel versus new technologies? Because, as I mentioned in the introduction, if you're going to use new technologies, everybody has to be able to cope with it wherever you're flying in the world. This works for all. How much of the gap is filled with fuel versus tech?
8: You're, you're exactly right. Fuel is expected to solve about 60 to 70 percent of, of the obligation, right, to reduce to net zero. Um, you know, it's a, it, it works today. It's going to work well into the future. And as we transition into the future, we can make ethanol from other waste sources, things like municipal solid waste, agricultural residues, things that are second generation, as we call them, not just using first generation energy crops. So for us, there's a very long and bright sort of history ahead of, of evolving the supply chains, evolving the feedstock to continue to, to improve the carbon intensity of the fuels that we produce.
0: Yeah, because that's one of the criticisms, isn't it? That it diverts foodstuffs or sources of foodstuff and planting away from um, human consumption. Um, we've got more to talk about. I'll get you back. Jimmy. Come back soon, please. More to That's discuss. Good. Thanks. See you. CEO of Lanza Jet. Good to chat to you, sir. Thank you. Welcome back to First Move and to the Women's World Cup. Co-hosts Australia advancing to the knockout stage as they eliminate Olympic champions Canada. And earlier, Japan stunned Spain with four goals. Amanda Davis joins us now. Amanda, we have to talk about Japan. Wow. Yeah, Julia,
6: uh, heading into this tournament, people were talking about six or seven teams, weren't they, who could potentially win it. I have to say nobody was particularly loudly talking about Japan, but in this game today against Spain, one of the most talented squads of players in this tournament, without doubt, they scored more goals in one game than they did in the entirety of their four matches at the last tournament four years ago. They have been so impressive. They started with five goals against Zambia, another two against costa rica and here they were with such a show of intent they didn't dominate possession but when they got their chances they took their chances and there are a whole lot of people getting very very excited about this young Japan squad who have been quietly progressing through the the ranks of the the junior tournaments, the likes of the under-17s, the likes of the under-20s, feeling that perhaps just maybe this could be their chance of going for another deep run in the competition, which they won, of course, in 2011. But if they won 4-0, so too did... The tournament co-hosts Australia. The Matildas, as they're known, not quite waltzing. There was a whole lot more urgency than that in this one. They knew they had to win or it was the co-hosts out, of course, suffering the same fate that New Zealand did uh, over the weekend. They were up against the Olympic gold medal winners, Canada. They had the weight of expectation and pressure, a, a full Melbourne crowd and, of course, all those questions over their star player, Uh, Sam Kerr but they wasted no time this was a real show of intent for them all the players all the team came together at the moment when it mattered Hayley Rasso has just secured a move to Spain to Real Madrid she scored two in the first half Uh, Steph Catley there finishing the victory off so from third in the group and facing exit it's Australia who go through top of their group alongside Nigeria, but a really sad end to a tournament. Lots of questions being asked uh, about the Olympic champions, Canada, Julia.
0: Yes, just nice to look at happy smiling faces and people celebrating. (laughs) Great to have you on, Amanda Davis. Thank you. And that's it for the show. Connect the World is up next. We'll see you tomorrow.